1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, the best podcast you are listening to right now. I am Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker?
0: Hello, everyone. Hello, Mark.
1: Hello, Walker. Answer the question, Walker. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I am very glad to hear it. So to this week, we're going to talk about board games. We're going to talk about our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our topic this week, which is going to be the virtues of popularity, something we both know a great deal about. And before we get started, though, I'd like to have a a sort of a lifestyle insert. I just want to relay something that happened to me today. Now, I am not one who likes to bash religious minorities. But I have to say that I still do not understand the sleeving lifestyle. I resort to sleeving as a last resort. I have to sleeve because I wanted to bring my... Sakura arms up to date with the new Season 5 translations. And for that, you need to slip the lovely little inserts that people have painstakingly translated in in with the cards. And you can either sticker them with stickers or use sleeves and slide them in. And so there I was in trepidation descending into the the game store, not really knowing how this whole sleeve business works. Because here's the thing that I don't quite get. The word standard is used quite a bit in the sleeve industry. Standard this, standard that, standard and other things. How could there be 23 different standards and even then be variations within what constitutes
0: standards. I, I don't know. I don't understand it myself.
1: All that happens when I get sleeves is I get something that I think works, give them money, and then come home to realize that none of the dimensions fit. I, I walked in and a, a good friend of ours happened to be there for an X-Wing tournament. I nearly swooned and collapsed into his arms with tears streaming down my face. I thrust Help. myself into his tender mercies and he was like, yeah, I guess this is what you need. And sure enough, they don't work. So...
0: Well, that's why Fantasy Flight, you know, came up with this wonderful color coding system and did their own sleeves because then, you know, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff.
1: Yeah, I have to say. Well, that's the thing with being a sleever, right? You have to pick an on-ramp. You have to devote yourself to a certain company's output and just commit long-term and heaven help you if that company goes under or changes product lines. Agreed. I don't understand. I just don't. Anyway, our Eurus. roughly last year, we reviewed
0: Level 7 Omega Protocol. Which is a one versus all- science fiction alien type get in there and shoot some machine guns with giant robots and or flamethrowers and or gas filled rooms
1: well that's how you do it you always play the heavy or the meat sack
0: yes it is true I tend to show up
1: with the rifleman and deploy lots of bots anyhow Have you played Level 7 Omega Protocol since we
0: reviewed it, Walker? I don't think I have.
1: I have played it once or twice, and this, I think, is a function of two things. Number one, it's a function of the fact that the 1v-all dynamic, as we commented in the review, is very, very particular, and it's not for everybody. Playing the overlord of the bad guy or running these things is is a very tricky thing, both socially and in terms of gameplay. And although we both think Level 7 Omega Protocol does it better than any other game, it's still a little bit... Touchy, shall we say. And the second reason is, quite frankly, when I'm in the mood for something like this, I'm almost always in the mood for a co-op version. And we have been spoiled for co-op versions of, hey, do you want to go and mow down waves of enemies in any number of formats... So I don't think it's a comment on the quality of the game. It's just insofar as it's a very particular niche, the one v all mode. And the one v all mode, the market's mostly moved on. I mean, Level Segment: America Market Protocol was published in 2013. And at the time, good solo systems hadn't quite been perfected to the extent that they have now. And there's just been a deluge of co-op versions that we've been more than happy to play instead. And they had a big Kickstarter for this, did they, they did. Not? They did. They changed a whole bunch of stuff. They updated a whole bunch of stuff, and they reprinted things. Now, it was, it was a strange Kickstarter program, because they didn't offer upgrade packs for old users. Now, they were called upgrade packs, but it was just intre- reintroducing all the new content that they put into there. There was a smattering of new missions and, and new equipment and stuff, but to get the new versions of the cards, all the errated stuff... All the you know the normal things you would expect from a first to second edition, no support whatsoever. All you, you you download the PDF, and then what you have to do is make mock-ups of yourself. Perhaps, of course, using sleeves.
0: That that is very odd. I agree.
1: It, I commented at the time that when fulfillment was happening, a whole bunch of users in my situation, people who had the first edition of Level Seven Omega Protocol, were saying, "I thought I was supposed to get the new cards," and then a number of other people saying, "I thought so too." And then I carefully scrutinized the pledge level, and they don't actually mention that you get that but a whole bunch of people were in the same position I was we had gotten the false impression that we were getting the updated version when in fact we weren't really it was a strange Kickstarter but I'm glad it's in print I really do I mean it's worth the effort to get it to the table now and then because it really does a lot of things extremely well particularly in that one v all dynamic which again is not a dynamic I frequently want but it is really good I wish I played it more I to be frank I don't think I'll play it more often than I do which is to say maybe once or twice a year but that's only because of a preference for co-op and the fact that the market is saturated, very nicely saturated with excellent, excellent alternative offerings.
0: It has, has a really interesting mechanism, right? All Running all through that world is how the aliens feed off the tension or the adrenaline of their opponents, of the humans, right? So it's one of these things where the more you do... It generates these tokens, which the the main overlord or bad guy can use to, you know, deploy his troops or do extra or interesting things, and I think they do a great job of that.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful game. And honestly, if there were somehow a co-op version, I'd probably play it more. But again, that's merely a preference thing and a group dynamic thing. Again, for 1v all games, I have yet to see anything even remotely approach the quality of level 7 Omega Protocol, but then again... It's not really a fertile design space
0: for the past few years. And that is the game that we reviewed last year? Ish. Now on to the games that we played this week. Mark, what did you get to play this
1: week? It was a really good week for gaming, I have to say. There were a couple of duds, and I'm sure, I'll am sure i sure talk about that, but I want to start with the game that I most wanted to play for the longest time, and that is Guards of Atlantis 2 by Artem Ninchaporov at Wolf Designer. And he has sent me the early versions of some of the files, and I very painstakingly with sleeves. Printed up a lot of the, uh, the mock-ups, and so I got to play with some of the new characters, got to play with some of the rebalanced characters. Actually, what happened was, under the general aegis of our New Year's resolutions and fulfilling our New Year's resolutions, a local listener of the podcast, whom I, whom I shall call Dr. Handsome, approached me during a common game night. People were splitting off to decide what to play, and he said, So, how's... Uh... How's your resolution to uh, decide what gets to the table going? And I said, not well, given that, that was those were the first two words that I'd said ever since the discussion about what to play had happened. I said, all right, what do you want to play? We're playing that. And so with his, his assistance, we corralled two other people and we played Guards of Atlantis 2. It was marvelous. I specifically, Walker, if you recall when we played at shucks. There are your two characters, you and your partner, you had a difficult time getting them off the ground because they were a little bit trickier and they were not well suited against the playstyle of the two characters we picked, or at least not transparently so. So I deliberately picked the character that your partner had played, namely the Angry Bear, who is not very mobile, and that is a challenge to play well in a game where you have to cover a lot of
0: ground. Considering it needs to be... uh... Adjacent to his enemies as well.
1: Well, that's just it. Yes and no. And so I, it, it was very instructive and illustrative. I don't know that I would have been able to play nearly so well with this character had I not seen what had happened previously. And the thing is, is that his job, the Angry Bear's job, or at least the way that I played him, because different builds could play him a different way, is not necessarily to kill a whole bunch of things, but to lock down areas of the board and make it very treacherous for enemy heroes to get close. And in in so doing, I was able to basically pin both opponents, both of their heroes, and prevent them from operating at full capacity. Meanwhile, my partner just went around the periphery and murdered everything. And I was able to trigger his special abilities with great effort, but that's one of the things about Guards of Atlantis, and we commented on this frequently, is that it's difficult to get some of the special abilities to work, but when they do, you feel brilliant. And it was it was amazing, it was joyous it was I, i'd been waiting so long to play it again, or it felt like an eternity, and it was absolutely marvelous to see both the new characters and the old characters brought up to snuff. It was great watching people discover their characters and discover how to make different builds and react to the different environments and First, we wanted to try to win by pushing the minions, and then it clearly w- that wasn't going to happen, and so we had to make a pivot, and we started building towards murdering opponent heroes, and I would lock them down and threaten them because the Angry Bear, in addition to a variety of force discard abilities, he can force opponents to discard cards under the right circumstances, at range with difficulty. He's also a stat monster, and so he's very, very difficult to bring down, so I was absorbing all these attacks, and when he attacks, if you're stupid enough to end your turn next to him, he will hit you real hard. Like an angry bear. Very much like an angry... I hadn't thought of it that way, Walker. That's, there you go. Thank you for the perspective. Very profound, right? Yes. I could go on for a long time, but one thing to note is that the version that I was playing with has already been obsoleted. The development work has still been going on pace. I am not going to be going to the tremendous effort of making sure that my copy is always up to date, because that's a fool's errand, and quite frankly, the printer ink alone would bankrupt me, but the development work that's going on in Guards of Atlantis 2 is absolutely wonderful, and I was so happy to play again, and quite frankly, I'm going to try to keep playing this, this version again to just see more of the characters. The, the roster is so deep and so diverse now. I had a absolute wonderful time playing Guards of Atlantis 2, and I cannot wait for the final version to come
0: out. So you played with some of the new characters? Did you make any board modifications? Because they the, changed the board slightly as well. They did change the board. We played with the older
1: board, but with all of the new rules. So the, the I did notice that in the newer board, when you push the lane, using MOBA parlance, of course, uh, there's a bit of a catch-up mechanism in that you the defenders, the people who are close to losing, start off with one extra minion as compared to the opponent's. That's not true in the original board. In the original board, the balancing was just the placement of the minions. The quote-unquote defenders, their minions were further back, and so it was harder to get to them. But I, I don't really recall enough of the changes of the board to comment too deeply on, on how much of a difference that will make. But again, new board layouts is, just leads to more variety in a game system that is already going to be drowning in it once the second edition hits. So as I say, can't wait for the Kickstarter, can't wait for fulfillment. Love me some Guards of Atlantis, and Guards of Atlantis 2 seems even better.
0: You got to introduce me to the game you talked about last week, which is Las Vegas Royale, which is a fantastic little dice chucking filler game. Comes with nice little components, nice little dice tray that you, you know, huck the dice in. Tons of little mini games that you set up every round, you know, left, you know, top or bottom side, you flip them around and it has all these different, different, uh, areas that you want to control. And when you, when you put dice in there to control them, it'll trigger abilities and let you do fun, interesting things. It's a nice light game and I agree with you that it's a it's a great little filler game. Probably not one that I would choose, but still it wasn't terrible in my
1: eyes. You seem to find it very frustrating.
0: I was just looking for more of a just dis- of a decision space, right? And I I could see like we both Louis that we were playing with, we both him and I both got on the wrong foot in the first round where we both rolled a lot of the same number and then just you know dumped all our dice into one section where we didn't understand that it's best just to see where people are going and you know slowly filter out and
1: yeah it's and, an area majority game exactly and you don- in an area majority game you don't want to overcommit right from the outset because right. then you're just getting pretty poor returns yes. I don't see that as a detriment to the quality of the decision making in the game no no, but no. I'm not defending it no, as no, I'm an just saying that deep i did aim. I
0: didn't understand we didn't both didn't understand that right off the hop, so on the you know the very first roll we almost dedicated all of our dice to the first spot, and therefore that the rest of that round we only had a few dice left to you know move around so that you know it was the first round was a wash, and then you know we slowly got into it so what I'm hearing is that you have all these grapes, and yes. your grapes have gone sour, they're very sour, I see
1: very bitter, I see yes. No, I agree. It's it's a good filler. I think the decision making is pretty quality for the length of time involved and the rules explanation involved. I'm I'm a big fan, and that was Las Vegas Royale by Rudiger Dorn. So here's a public service announcement, Walker. There's a disease that infects the gaming community. The technical name is diminutive lost feed derangement syndrome, gotcha. but the more common name is tiny epic derangement syndrome oh, or Ted. My lord, gotcha. And you and I both know someone who's afflicted with a very serious case of Ted's. Quite badly, actually. Ted's kills three million Americans every year. It's true. Well, you need a slow
0: infusion of games like Big City or, you know...
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, as a result of our close association of someone who suffers from Ted's, every once in a while, Gamlin will shovel out some tiny epic dross onto the shelves of of gamers everywhere, and uh, we get to be subjected to this. And... This individual who suffers from this disease, it, it, it's its an illness, right? So you don't want to blame the victim, first of all. And secondly, as I, as I said to Huey last week, we shovel enough crap in front of his face that he'll happily play. So I figure we owe it to him every once in a while. So I got to play, got to. I played Tiny Epic Tactics. And I got to say, by far, it is the least offensive Tiny Epic game I've ever played. Which is to say it was kind of okay. The rough setup is that you're kind of sort of almost but not really playing a one-on-one little tactical kind of skirmish combat game thing. Here's the thing. At two, it is tolerable. At three or four, it's garbage. It just leads into all the multiplayer business because, of course, you have these quote-unquote heroes with, say, 12 hit points, and attacks do three or four hit points at a turn. Well, guess what? You only get points for knocking them out, So multiplayer is just a crazy last hit nonsense smorgasbord where frequently you're just sitting there thinking, do I want to hit this guy? Well, he's at full health. I'm not going to knock him out. So why would I want to hit him and make someone else's life easier? Eh. So he would have this weird pseudo positioning thing. Anyway. It's all right I guess. It does a very very cute thing whereby the box is the box bottom is turned upside down and now it's terrain and you put this on top of a mat and you put other little pieces of box out and they form elements of the terrain. It looks very cute honestly. You play with these little embossed meeples that are nominally representative of the four classes and you get a different person of each class
0: and all that all that stuff is fine and it's crazy unique classes like ones you've never heard of like elf and dwarf and human right no that's not true actually you have an archer you have a
1: magic user you have a fighter and you have an animal of subtype oh, that's crazy i had a uh i had a monkey that could pick people up and then drop them off and my opponent had a heavily armored elephant who seems pretty overpowered but such, such, such was our experience with the initial uh, animals. It, w- it was, f- look, at two players, it was fine. Would I rather play any one of half a dozen better two-player tactics skirmishy things? Absolutely, 100%. It reminded me, actually, of how unfortunate it is that Titan's ta- tactics didn't take off. Because in a very real way, it's very much like Titan's tactics. Very, very small footprint, very quick and dirty sort of skirmishy thing. Titan's tactics is roughly 17.7 times better than Tiny Epic Tactics and this would say nothing of things like Warhammer Underworlds or any number of other skirmish games that are available anyhow it was mostly inoffensive and that for me is high praise when it comes to a Scott Alm's product that was Tiny Epic Tactics
0: you and I got to play a game called In the Hall of the Mountain King designed by Greg, I think oh no wait that Gr- was... it's, it's, it's designed by Jay Cromer
1: I believe Jay Cormier and Graham Jans or Graham Jans, Jans, Jans I, right. I couldn't tell you anyway
0: it's you're playing trolls and you're digging out your burrow not to get too close to the center of the volcano and you're unearthing your 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 statues your heritage statues and you're getting points and you're getting all these minerals and stuff to hire more trolls i guess so you can unearth more anyway you put the trolls into your trolls moot this being said it wasn't It wasn't a terrible game. I enjoyed playing it. I felt as though it it suffered from this busy work, right? It's like, you know, pull all the resources in. I get two of this, three of that, four of that. And then I, you know, pay it all back out again. Or I transform this into that. I transfer that into this. And then I pay it all out so I can get even more back in again. So I can pay it all out again. But it did have that interesting resource management, right? Where you hire these trolls. You make an interesting pyramid. And every time you enter a troll, that's when your resource... Uh, gathering triggers right and you and you gather everything down the pyramid unless there's already resources there so it sort of like funnels you into spending those resources before you hire and that leads into my you know last remark where it seems to be seems to be this constant handcuffing where you don't want to spend resources because you don't want them to do a suboptimal action where you know you, you're not going to get some resources or you don't have enough to build the tunnel you need so you're forced to get a troll or you're forced to build it, you know what I mean? It seems you're always being forced in a certain direction.
1: Well, I think, I wouldn't necessarily put it in terms of being forced. I think there is a tension between doing the suboptimal move or doing a different suboptimal move. Because you're right, there's there's this timing issue, and I think honestly that's probably the most interesting thing in terms of gameplay of In the Hall of the Mountain King, because resources usually sit on your troll's. And you can't get any more resources on your trolls while the resources are there. So you want to spend them before getting a different troll so you can maximize your throughput. But that will force you to play inefficiently in other ways. And so that tension, I thought, was kind of interesting. And it drove a lot of the tempo of the game. Because the game ends when somebody has finished their, their troll pyramid. Everything's pyramids. You have a pyramid of trolls. You buy the trolls from a pyramid of trolls. I'm shocked that this game didn't have an ancient Egypt theme. It's Illuminati
0: thing. Sure.
1: Oh, okay. Sure, sure. So you take your Fnords, I'm sorry, you take your trolls and you go and do these things, and whoever gets their 10th troll triggers the end of the game. Now, and through the most, all the troll management stuff I thought was actually kind of neat. The rest of it, namely building your polyominoes on uh, a tile grid, I found less interesting. Partially because I'm not a huge fan of spatial puzzles, and partially also because it, there wasn't, it really, When it comes to tiling, I think there are roughly speaking three categories of tiling. There's the tiling where you're just laying tiles for your own personal private network, a la Papillon, which is how I'm going to try to say it in English. There's tiling where you're kind of sort of interacting with other people, like in the Hall of the Mountain King, because you can't have your networks intersect at any point. You can only block people by the corner principle. You you edge up to people, and that forces them to play suboptimally. I much prefer tile-laying when it's like Carcassonne or Tigers and Euphrates, where you're actually all playing on the same tile grid. That that maximizes player interaction and I think also maximizes visual appeal. You have this interesting sort of evolving situation Now, I like other other tiling games like Bad News Bears is of the first category and it's 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 pretty enjoyable but I I just found myself wishing that the board mattered more and that the placements were more interesting and 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 did more for me it was fine the game was fine it was diverting it didn't outstay its welcome with three with four or five I could see downtime being an issue because you're right you're spending a lot of time saying okay I get one of this type and two of this type and one of this other type and just waiting for people to wrestle with that could be somewhat unfortunate
0: yeah and like you said I wish the map Meant more, and the cool statues that were on it, you know, you know, the the most interesting part of the game really didn't mean too, too much. Of course, it was the essential part of scoring, but they just sort of like sat there on the map. You moved them around a little bit, but anyway, and that was in the Hall of the Mountain King. Burnt Island Games certainly knows how to put out a pretty production, though. We had the
1: deluxe version, and I have to say, this was probably the the one time where I looked at a game and said, you know what. I bet you the game trays are really going to make life easier because they separate all the polyominoes up by pile, and that part is is was a luxury. Finally, I got to play something I've been looking forward to for a long time. This is the reprint of Democker. This was put out by Spielworks late last year. Fulfillment's been kind of rolling out over the past few weeks. This is the legendary Eurogame by Karl-Heinz Schmiel, the legendary Eurogame designer, and I will point out, first of all, that on the box, very optimistically, there's a picture, there's a sort of drawing of Karl-Heinz Schmiel, and it says, Number one, hoping that there will be many, many more in this series. We know they're going to be reprinting Tribune, which, for my money, is the greatest worker placement game ever made, and hopefully they'll get to more of Karl-Heinz Schmiel's stuff, because he was a really, really good designer. Anyway. I had no idea what to expect coming into it, because I'd read the rules, I'd seen the rules changes from previous editions, I played the 2nd edition Die Mocker, I played the 3rd edition Die and this, this is kind of the 4th edition now. They've all had varying degrees of rule differences, but the differences between 2nd and 3rd edition on the one hand, and 4th edition are pretty big. Some of them are pretty fundamental, but at the end of the day, it's all about winning votes. It's about German politics. So, somebody with a, a bit of a politics background, and with a small bit of knowledge of post-war German politics... I was I I really like the theme and getting into a little bit of role playing is 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 always nice. But of course, nobody else at the table knows who the the CDU or the SPD are, so I'm usually alone when trying to do that. So you might have heard legends about Democker, and I'm actually going to do a more in depth review of Democker on So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad later. But suffice to say that they've cut down the length considerably. However long you used to think Demacher was, I hear people talking about how Demacher is a five-hour game, which I think is absurd. I can get a second or third edition Demacher uh, set up, explained, played, and taken away in under four. But this, this edition is now pretty much a two-hour area-majority game, which is to say very, 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 very playable in terms of length. This is with five players. And four of them that had never played before. And I was the only experienced player of any version of Die Mocker. Now, we ended up taking longer, but that was with extensive pizza breaks. I advertised the event as Pizza und Politik. Yes, it was very sophisticated. And this, again, was under the aegis of satisfying... New Year's resolutions. I wanted to do event gaming, and so I invited people over and and did mocker And I'm
0: surprised that you have got the pizza place to cut it in the German fashion. That was pretty interesting. I'd never seen a pizza place in Kingston cut it that way. Oh, you've never had pizza until you've had German pizza. There the, you the, go. the German shapes
1: are just fundamentally more aesthetic. So true. At any rate, it was really good. I think the changes are almost all for the, all for the better immediately. The only changes which I'm dubious about, I'm just not sure if I prefer the old version or the new version. Uh, one of the things that they've changed considerably, which is a frequent topic of conversation, is the polls. And then you auction off poll cards. And it used to be an open auction, and the consequences could be tremendous. So you'd see people bidding exorbitant quantities of money, either speculating or out of fear. In the new version, it's a once-around auction, so turn order matters a lot. But it ends with whoever's in the lead in the province. So if you have a built-in advantage in a province, well then, you're better off winning it later on. Which is very nice. And so, again, a lot of the changes were of that ilk. Streamlining things, cutting things out, instead of doing six rounds of seven elections. You now do four rounds of four elections. This is in the short version. You can do the longer version, which will turn into five rounds of seven elections. So it's not quite, very much like how, how when Fantasy Flight reprinted Merchant of Venus and they said, oh, well you can play the old version when it was an approximation of the old version. They didn't advertise this Spielwerks. They didn't say you could play the old version. but They said, oh, well you can do the seven election version if you want, but it's still radically different in structure from the previous seven election version. Anyway, I could go on and on about these differences. And as, as I said, in a different venue, I will. But as far as meaty, quality decision making area majority games, Demacher is and always has been excellent. And now it is in a version that is roughly two hours long. And as I've been saying frequently in the context of heavier Euro games, and I'll be probably repeating this for years. If you have lots of mechanisms and sub-mechanisms, I like it when A, they fit together in a reasonable way, and B, they funnel down into comprehensible victory conditions. And in Die Marker, it's both of those things are true in spades. The way media influence feeds into your ability to manipulate the issues, which feeds into your ability to protect you from polls, which feeds into your shadow cabinet, which feeds into a whole bunch of other things is wonderful and the victory conditions are incredibly simple you're involved in politics get votes that's how you win yes there's a couple other marginal ways you can get points but you want to win votes and that's incredibly intuitive and nobody's scratching their head thinking wait how does the game end how does how does the turn wait how do i get points this is worth how many points no it's very simple everything is very clear and transparent from that sense one of the people there actually commented who plays a lot of Euro games and comments that even for a lot of middleweight games he finds it difficult to con- conceive of how everything gels together, he commented halfway through the game that he had no difficulty internalizing how all of these systems intermeshed despite the fact that there are a fair number of them. So, Democker is a wonderful game it always has been. The new addition, I think, is Excellent. If you're a fan of Democker, I think this is an excellent version to try. If you've never played Democker and any of this sounds interesting, I think you do it uh, you do yourself a disservice if you've never played any version of it. And this is an excellent place to start. So I think kudos to Spielworks for their work on the new version of Democker. I cannot wait to see what they do with Tribune, which is always a game i preferred. And I think that if they keep reprinting Karlheinz Schmiel games, then he might get his reputation back that's kind of been in a lull because he hasn't published a whole lot in the past 10, 15 years.
0: And so that was my experience with Demacher. And those are the games that we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, we both love Era, Medieval Age. We do. It's coming out with an expansion. Saw some pictures of it, Mark. It looks fantastic. Makes it look even nicer, if that was even possible. Cute little cobblestone roads with bridges over the rivers. Can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see how they incorporate that into the game.
1: So all that we have so far are renders, but I agree with you. It looks adorable. And we both highly recommended Era Medieval Age. I think it got our number one components of the year, uh, both of us in our end of year roundup. I'm The only concern that I have, and this is an incredibly petty one, is the insert for Era Medieval Age is so perfect And there's no room for anything else. I'm a little concerned about how this is going to integrate with the base game. But this, as I say, is a very, very petty concern. I cannot wait to see what happens. They also threatened in the rulebook for Era Medieval Age, they threatened other versions, other settings, other, well, eras, if you want. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I think it's great. Small bit of news on the Kickstarter police. You commented not too long ago that you were waiting for the Kickstarter police to finally come in
0: and clear house. I've written right here. We're probably going to talk about the same thing. I have Kickstarter police written here. As what well. do you have to say about the Kickstarter police, Mark? I don't think it's going to happen because there is a game out there, Mark, that is it's up to two thousand six hundred people have pledged for this game. It's made 113,000 American dollars. Hasn't made
1: any money yet. Sorry. People have pledged, people have
0: pledged yes. to pay this amount of money. There is no designer accredited. There is no artist credited. This particular publisher that's putting it out has no background and no library, except for they have one Kickstarter that has not yet even shipped, which is a broom vacuum. Okay. Yet all of these people are still pledging for this game. So. My prediction of the Kickstarter police and people starting to police themselves is has fallen completely out of the window. And uh, Well,
1: tell us about this game. It sounds
0: awesome. No, Mark. It's some sort of weird Monopoly meets Catan where it actually has you're, you're migrating to Mars and it's an actual roll to move. So you move your little rover, D6 spaces... And if you land on a resource, you pick it up, and then you trade it with other people. And well, Mars is red hot right now. Well, Parker. you might land on somebody else's hotel. Did- I mean, sorry, uh, <laughs> uh, thing. In which case, oh, it's it's it seems very painful. I I'm wondering if people even looked at the rules. I I don't get it.
1: <laughs> well, if your news item is that uh, people pledge for some dodgy stuff on Kickstarter, allow me to tell you. <laughs> Well, no, my news was about the Kickstarter police actually exerting some power. Oh. We have been, we've mentioned a couple times, but there's been a lot more mention of the various alleged shenanigans and misdeeds of a certain company called Golden Bell. And the way they abuse Kickstarter backers and the way they abuse their collaborators and designers that they've worked with. Well, they've been banned from Kickstarter. Oh. Kickstarter has announced that they are no longer allowed to post Kickstarter projects for a variety of, shall we say, shenanigans, and so it looks like Kickstarter does indeed have a threshold that they're you know beyond which they will not let people go. Now, I will, I, I'm, I'm the first to admit, if Golden Bell Kickstarters brought in say the amount of money that Simon Kickstarters did, maybe they wouldn't do this, and I say this only half cynically. But it looks like they are willing to take action at some point. So go- no more Golden Bell partnerships on Kickstarter for the f- foreseeable future. So
0: they do they they sometimes take action. So on my last bit of news, just more on a prediction thing, is because you know I got to pull back now all my predictions because you know. On, on on more consideration and more thought. It, it was just the, the Terraforming Mars, where right? I said there was going to be no more expansions for Terraforming Mars. Mark. <laughs> I, I failed I failed to understand the fact that maybe there won't be any more expansions. So what does that mean, Mark? I understood that less of a prediction and more of his idle wish. Well, the fact that there's no more expansions mean now, now it's time for Terraforming Mars, the big box. <laughs> not <laughs> saying Not course. saying that's been announced or anything, but I'm sure by the end of the year... There will be one. So I'm just modifying my prediction. How's that? I will say this about Terraform Morris. I did see that
1: in one of the newer expansions, they now actually have two-level boards. So the components have been getting slightly better. That's one thing. Yeah, it's something. Anyhow. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. And now we move on to our topic this week, which I have decided to label the virtues of popularity. Were you popular in High School, Walker?
0: Oh, terribly so.
1: I could see you being very popular in high school. You, you were a jock, right? I,
0: I, yes, I was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's the only thing I know about popularity. You should wash your hair once every two weeks. Once every two weeks. Okay. That is my guide to popularity. Whew. Man, if it was that easy. <laughs> so what? What? why don't you tell us a little bit about our conception of, of this topic?
0: Well, my conception of this topic, and I think you sort of fell in, might have fallen in line or understood what I meant, was the fact that. I'm trying to understand why certain games are deemed good, or why certain games are are doing well where others are not. And is is a game being popular reason for it to be called good? I.e., because it's being so well received, because it's being played by so many people, because so many people are able to talk about it, is that a characteristic of a game being good?
1: So I think there are two categories of things to talk about under this topic one of them is directly addressing that that is the aesthetics the aesthetic argument as to what do we mean when we call a game good and is there a version of that we're not going to do a definitive exegesis of what it is for a game to be called good but we can nonetheless explore whether it is a legitimate aesthetic judgment to say this game must be good because it's so popular or something along those lines and then, on the other hand, I'd just like to talk a little bit about how there are definitely other virtues independently as to whether or not a game can be called good by virtue of it's popularity. there are other virtues to a game being incredibly popular both for the hobby and generally and for the people who play it so that's that's some other stuff that, that I want to talk about and I'm sure you'll have uh, things to contribute there so let me just talk, start by talking about again not a not a robust comprehensive analysis of of, of goodness because that's the entire field of ethics. But mostly when I talk about a a game, I'm talking about its quality as a design, right? I talk about its design qualities when I say that a game is good or bad or good or bad for me, you know, we can get into the subjectivism, blah, 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 blah. But I think that in terms of the overall design quality, saying that it has to be a well-designed game because it is popular with lots of people, that I think is a straightforward application of a very, very common logical fallacy, which is called the appeal to popularity. Something has to be true, because it is widely held to be true. Well, that's been a fallacy for millennia, and it's obviously false. So I don't think, and maybe you're going to push back on this, maybe not, I think it is reasonably uncontroversial to say that its quality as a as an artifact of design doesn't necessarily have any strict connection with how
0: popular the game is. Oh, 100% agree. Okay. Well, I'm just underneath- wondering, like, when reviewers talk about how they... How they endorse a game or how they give a, a game the the you know tell people to pick it up or something that they should look into. Are you talking about us or other people? Uh, just reviewers in general. Okay, so including not not us. Okay, we we <laughs> so other people. And other <laughs> other reviewers might do this. Okay, do they do it only because it's popular? Only because? Oh wow! Only because they feel so. Maybe they also feel this this push. Maybe they feel so people will enjoy it because so many other people are enjoying it.
1: Huh. So I think there's a number of different things to unpack there. One, one. The first thing is we should, of course, rule out the people who do previews, right? Because yes. previews are paid adverts, whatever. Correct. And, of course, when games get more popular, sometimes that leads to more marketing or more marketing buzz and so forth. And so maybe it has more volume of things there. Or maybe the same factors that will lead it to become popular lead it to being in an environment where there are more previews and such. Like, for example... I think we can say that whatever else you want to say about Stonemeyer Games' designs, they are very, very good at generating positive media, regardless of how successful the game is, and I know this because Charterstone was not well-received, but Charterstone got a lot of positive buzz and a lot of attention. On the other hand, something like Tapestry or Wingspan, which did very well and was very well-received, also had that same kind of, not necessarily the same volume, but it's it's been going up as time goes on. So we can separate out all this all this, you know, preview stuff, all these paid reviews. And I think I think we can legitimately dismiss as either not existing or not worth talking about, the kind of individual who will who will say, "I'm going to say that I enjoyed this game, even though I didn't, because that's the popular opinion, and I'm afraid of going against the grain." That's correct. I don't know how many people talk like that. I suspect the number is approaching zero. Maybe there are a bunch of them. I don't know, but I, I sincerely doubt that that's a prevalent attitude. Then there's the middle case, though, and this actually is is, is, is this is partially about popular games, and it's also par- partially about reviewing. How much of a job is it for the reviewer to start imagining contexts in which a game will be successful?
0: You know? This this is what I'm talking about.
1: Okay. So why don't you try to articulate what kind of review process that might look like? No, seriously. What what is that sentiment? Well, I
0: just mean like this will work in a particular group or Or their experience with the game so far, bringing it to conventions is that everyone's enjoyed it, or the, just the general feel around the game itself has been so positive that they disregard the actual mechanics of the game, just the fact that everyone seems to be caught up in the buzz and or the push forward of this game. And therefore, all of their experience experiences with the game have been positive, so they just sort of portray that out in their review.
1: Well, but so, okay, but some, you said we were talking about other people, but we do that all the time as well. Sometimes a game, it, we have a category for it worst game you enjoyed. We do it every year. We talk about games that are mechanically unsound or we think have elements of design decisions that were bad and we think we could be, could or ought to have been improved, but nonetheless work. Sometimes it's a theme thing, sometimes it's a component thing or whatever. I don't think that's what you're talking about. No. I think you're instead talking about an individual. And again, I'm not sure how common this is, but it's an interesting interesting thing to think and talk about. An individual who, who, who brings a copy of a game and tries it out with a whole bunch of different groups and they don't like it for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of bad design, or maybe it's because of any a, a number of other things, and they don't like it, but everyone they've shown it to has, and everyone out there, quote-unquote, seems to really enjoy it. Is that what you're talking about? A little bit, yes. Okay. And so, what what do you think is a re- reviewer's responsibility, or what is a consumer's responsibility? Because I don't think this is exclusively a function of criticism or, or being a reviewer. How does one express one opinion in that context, or what does one have to say? or what, uh, Talk more about no, that situation. Well, I just think that... It- if You're fascinating it, me, Walker. I want you to say more. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry.
0: I'm just saying if if it is a reviewer, then they just have to just fall back on their experiences, right? And the fact that and to be constant, right? If they if they if they just constantly review games, people understand why they think this particular way or what about that particular game they didn't like.
1: Yeah, it's weird. As as a reviewer, sometimes I've struggled with this because. Sometimes I dislike a game and I know it's because just of very particular preferences that I have. If it's a spatial puzzle game, I'm probably not going to enjoy it. If it's an abstract game, I'm probably not going to enjoy it. If it's a game about sports, I'm probably not going to enjoy it. All these things, you know, categories of games, either thematically or mechanically. And I don't know, even in that case, how much it is appropriate to say, well, I didn't like it, but everyone else at the table seemed to like it. Because I think insofar, and this is getting very self-referential, usually I I reserve this for so very wrong about all the games you like are bad. But nonetheless, here's where we are. I question the legitimacy of a reviewer trying to borrow someone else's viewpoint or trying to express somebody else's viewpoint. If what we do has any value, it's because we have a viewpoint and we express it. And I don't know that it has much of a value for us to try to go too deep into why Huey, Dewey, Louie, or anyone else likes or disliked a particular experience. You can note very much, I think, as a footnote, I seem to be the only one that likes this game or I seem to be the only one that dislikes this game. But I think that that's very much a footnote because the more you try to adopt somebody else's perspective, I think the less you have to say of substance. Agreed. Do you think that this is a perspective that is broadly shared? Like, do you consume lots of board
0: game media where you feel like people are not doing this? No, it was just it was just like when I'm seeing all these top ten, you know, because the the year just ended, so there's all these you know top ten games.
1: Yeah, everybody that does top ten lists at the end of the year is a chump. I, agree. I know, I
0: one hundred percent sellouts. Agree. And then I see some of these games that have made you know the, their top three Name Names Walker. No, I'm not naming any names, or nor am I naming games. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm and and we felt as though there was definite issues with these particular games Mm -hmm. that they didn't even make our list. I'm not saying that, you know, our lists are, you know, the be all end all of lists, but these games had definite problems, yet they made like their top three. And I'm, and I was just, I'm just trying to justify these choices. Did they get caught up in the hype? Did they just have great experiences because the game was so accessible to everybody or, or the, the community at large, for whatever reason, uh, you know, grasp this game and, and played it a lot, things like that. I'm just wondering if it was just sort of like a an experience-type game as opposed to a mechanically sound game-type thing.
1: Well, that, that actually segues neatly into some, the, the other bucket of observations that I have, which is to say that although I don't want to engage in the appeal to popularity fallacy and I don't think that the popularity of a game has any necessary connection to its quality as design work because we know lots of incredibly well-designed games that aren't very popular, or else we know lots of we think very badly designed games that, anyway. What are the other virtues of a game being incredibly popular? Is there any value above and beyond of it as a, as, as, as a game to it being popular? And I think one of them is, you touched on this, as a social facilitator. This is one of those aspects of the hobby that very rightfully I get criticized for not emphasizing enough. We are not evangelists of fun. We're not enthusiasm merchants. That's not what we do. And there is a virtue in a game just being that sort of social lubricant or social facilitator. I I promised myself I wasn't going to use the term social lubricant because it sounds awful. As a social facilitator to good group dynamics. And some badly designed games... Are Are you lubricating my facilitator? No, I'm lubricating your society. Got gotcha. you. And there are there are there are benefits to these things. We're talking generally speaking. We're talking about relatively accessible games. I think that's that's largely the category we're talking about. There's a benefit to having a game where you know that there's going to be no rules explanation because it's so popular, everyone's familiar with it. And I've been I've I felt this before. I remember back when I was a little bit more in step with Euro design principles like I, I've, I've always been a fundamentally I think primarily a Euro gamer since I've entered, entered the hobby to a large extent that shifted a little bit having fallen into your company but I, I don't like Roland Wrights, I don't like Fatal I don't like a lot of this other stuff so I, I feel like I'm kind of drifting out from what's popular and there is a kind of cost to this I remember how nice it was immediately after the release of Dominion in particular I did a lot of traveling the year Dominion got released and I knew that any public game gathering I would go to, somebody would be playing Dominion, and I could just sit down and play Dominion, and nobody there would need a rules explanation, and everyone was going to be on the same page, and it was a great way, in an instance where I was already introducing myself to strangers, whereby there wasn't this additional cognitive load of understanding a new game or being the new guy or anything, it's like, ah, we're all on the
0: same page here. Let's all play Dominion. That's right. That Sa- was nice. Same, same thing with Catan or Monopoly. These are games that everyone knows the rules. You don't need the. Well, you no, nobody sit knows. Down.
1: Nobody plays by the rules of Monopoly,
0: but yes. <laughs> and same thing with the, the online community, right? You can you'll be able to go online and share your experiences and feel part of something, right? Everyone's playing the same game. Either if it's not with you, it's with other people. So you're sh- sharing experiences. You will get. Answers to whatever rules you have because, you know, you'll post them up. They'll be answered immediately because there's so many people playing this game. And like you said, you're bound to find someone to play it with. And this is one aspect in which we joke about how we're elitist snobs, but
1: one thing I think I've never really done, not lately anyway, not since becoming an adult, is other than the bounds of this podcast where presumably you're listening to hear me talk about things, I don't harsh people's buzzes, right? If people are enthusing in my earshot about a game that I think is utter garbage, I'm not going to jump in and talk about how I think the game is utter garbage. I'm gonna let them have their their enthusiasm. You're the same way. You're not gonna you're not you're not gonna stomp on someone's delight. And so as a sort of establisher, this is my second large category of things, as a as helping to establish group identity, a lot of these popular games are very good at doing that. You talked just a couple weeks ago about how you overheard conversations in a game store where games that we thought are very mediocre were being praised to the sky, and you had to hold your tongue. And I I was there. I, I did the same thing. I, I had a, the, sort of the opposite experience recently. So so again, under the, under the category of establishing a group identity and how sort of touchstone popular games are good at doing that, the last time I remember that happening where I was fully on board, I think was Blood Rage. I think that was the last time where a game got released where it was the big thing and everyone was on board and I was like, yes, this is excellent, let's all play this thing. I remember, I I was watching a movie today actually where it became very clear about halfway through that that the movie expected me to care and know very deeply about this particular member of the royal family circa 1920 something. And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. I didn't know who this person was. It didn't mean anything to me. And it was just a, a subtle reminder that a lot of these things, a lot of these cultural products, whether they're movies or music or, or board games, help establish a group identity. And so, when when there are these big touchstone events, and when everyone knows how to play, and when everyone's on board and whims and playing, it helps to you know make make the hobby and groups. More inclusive, and it just it just helps underscore that we're all in this together.
0: True, and what you just said there, and you talked about it earlier as well with her Sacra Arms. When games are popular like that, people are going to make translation, so the game will be available in more languages. So the Greekless stickers, the Sacra Arms inserts. So the more popular game is, the more languages it's going to be available in, and the fact that it's just going to be more available in general because if it's a widely popular game, then it's going to be reprinted more often, and therefore be, uh. More accessible.
1: Yeah, even a successful design, but you're right, because the, the new distribution models where everything is more or less a periodical, even the successful designs go out of print in about five hot seconds and are not reprinted for another year or so. The very popular games, those big touchstone games, they generally speaking, with a couple of months of a blip here and there,
0: tend to be pretty reliably accessible, which is pretty good. Other benefits is that you might get a deluxified copy of it because it's popular there'll be third (laughs) there'll be third party upgrades like inserts and upgraded components and all sorts of fancy stuff uh tournaments because it's a popular game there might be organized tournaments which is sometimes a good thing sometimes an awfully terrible thing
1: well on that topic uh just as 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 a footnote all of this applies primarily to board games if you are talking about miniatures games, well then, popularity is pretty much the single most important thing to consider when getting into a miniatures game. Because if you don't have an opponent, spending a couple hundred bucks on miniatures system <laughs> is pretty pointless. And so that is the first and best advice that you always give to somebody considering a, mini- a new miniature system. Do people play it in your area? If not, we strongly recommend not. So just keep that in mind.
0: It also brings new people into the hobby, right? Right. The more popular a game is, then the more people play it, the more people hear about it, and, you know, it brings more and more people into the hobby.
1: And that's one of the great ways to break down gatekeeping. You know, gatekeeping the unfortunate attitude is like, ugh, no, real gamers don't do that. I remember when Wingspan was first released, and I'm sure that nothing you've said thus far has anything to do with Wingspan. Nothing 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 whatsoever.
0: Not a single thing.
1: I think two different people. Asked me independently that were not gamers, saying, Oh, you know, you know you know a lot about games. Have you heard about this thing? I read about it at this place or whatever, or I know someone who's a birder and whatever. Have you heard about this wingspan? And sure enough, it's an opportunity to bring new people in. And if I were if I weren't such a snob, or if I if I had had one of the three copies available at that point, I could have been like, Yes, we play Wingspan. Come down to the store, descend into the basement of, of socially maladapted and malcontents, and you can Come join it! Like no, there's a benefit to something being part of the zeitgeist. It is fun to be part of the big group that is all having the same experience together. Exactly. I think it's one of the reasons why people like Marvel movies so much. Big tentpole, tentpole franchises. Everyone gets to be on the same page. You're all part of the same moment. And now, sometimes, of course, this has a little bit of a nefarious influence, right? If everybody's on the same page with a game, if it's part of a of, of a dynamic, whether it's a group dynamic or broader gamer dynamic, sometimes there's this. Exclusionary pressure if you're not already on board. Actually, just last week at the, at the at our local game store at Game Night, there was a game of Secret Hitler going on, which is very much the local social deduction game of choice, unfortunately. And one of the people there, who's relatively new... It was round three or four before it was revealed that he didn't know how the game was played and he was just winging it. <laughs> because It's awkward to be the one person at a table of ten to say, I don't know how this works. Please explain it to me. <laughs> yeah,
0: what? I, I, I don't know what's going on.
1: <laughs> so, you know, he just decided to fake it until.
0: <laughs> That's how strong Secret Hitler is. The other thing I have here is I can get more com- Competitive, in a good way, because more people are playing the game more often, it's a game that comes back to the table more often, so, you know, new interesting strategies will come about, and, you know, it'll be, you know, introduce this nice competitive atmosphere.
1: Sticking to popular releases is very much a good way to fight back against the endless cult of the new. You can just say, look, I want there to be a sufficient penetration and sufficient user base before I move on to the next thing. And that,
0: that I think, is a reasonable metric as anything else. It uh, gives the counterfeiters something new to work on. Oh yeah, you got to keep them employed. Exactly. It's a job creator. Yeah, yeah well, they probably get bored doing the same old, you know, castles of. Burgundy it's a creative industry, right? Over and over again. They're right? artists.
1: You have to give them new material. Exactly. I think this has been an interesting discussion, both of aesthetics and of market dynamics.
0: I agree. That's why I, I love these discussions.
1: I'm glad you got something out of it, Walker. Too bad none of our listeners do. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just rolled a dice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S T R O L L D A D I C E at Gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the Games you Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board gaming guild, which is guild number three two three six. We're almost at a thousand users, Walker. I know, right? And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.
0: Speaking of a thousand users at our guild, if you agree or disagree with anything we say, please come to our guild. Oh, wait, I had to do this. Please, Please send an email to aircanada.com. I'm sure they care. We don't. See you next week.
1: You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.